I invite you to open God's Word to Malachi, last book of our English Bible. This weekend we're finishing a series in the Minor Prophets are called. That's a nickname probably given by St. Augustine back in the 4th century. These are the last 12 books of the English Bible. As we've said all along, the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Old Testament, ends in Chronicles, one book that oversees from Adam all the way to the end of the Old Testament era. But the English Bible, for a number of reasons, is rearranged and ends in Malachi. And so we've been going through the last 12 books. They're just called the 12 in the Hebrew Bible. They are distinguished, though, by name. And Malachi is the last of those. The Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets run from Hosea to Malachi, written over a period of about 300 years, roughly 750 B.C., to roughly 450 BC. Subtitle of our series has been God's Word in Troubled Times. And the reasons are that these 12 books offer hope and perspective for God's people in all generations, whatever they're facing. One of the most encouraging things we've learned about the 12 books is that they are saturated with the character of God. And specifically, three attributes of God are continually recirculated through these 12 books. God's sovereignty... God's holiness, and God's love. And we see those over and over and over again. This weekend, we're looking at the final book, Malachi. The big picture of Malachi is pretty simple and straightforward. He is confronting the spiritual apathy and disobedience of God's people. And he does this by issuing reminders of both God's love and God's judgment. So we're going to dive in and look. His book can be divided into three parts. First, there are words of affirmation. Then there are words of warning. And then lastly, words of hope. So first of all, words of affirmation. That's the first five verses of the book. Because we're doing these books one Sunday per book, I give a few introductory facts in case you're not familiar with that book. So let me give a couple quick facts about Malachi. Some of you have read it. Some of you have never read it. So a couple introductory things. Number one, the author. The author stated in verse one, the oracle of the Lord, the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So the author's name is Malachi, which in Hebrew you can translate my messenger. Most Old Testament scholars believe it is a personal name, personal pronoun. So my messenger. His book, by the way, is quoted in the New Testament in Jesus, Mark, Luke, and Paul. The date which he is writing, that's important to know because you need to know his context. So most of the, what we call the minor prophets, wrote before the big exile. That's the 70-year period where Israel had been invaded by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. We've talked about, we've compared it a little bit to what's going on in Israel right now, but this was tenfold, hundredfold. He comes in destroys the land, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, takes the vast majority of people hostage and marches them all the way what is today Iraq. It is a brutal 70-year period of exile. Most of the prophets, most of the minor prophets are writing before that event, warning the people of what's to come because of their sin. But then we have a couple of the prophets who are writing after that exile Malachi is one of those. He's writing about 100 years after the people have returned. So about 50,000 of the people returned. It's now been 100 years. They're back in the land and things are not going very well. That's 
the dating of his book. And one of the reasons we also know that he wrote at this time is because in verse 8 of chapter 1, for example, this is just an example, Malachi uses the Persian word for governor. Well, we know at this time in history, the Persians were ruling Palestine now, not Babylon anymore. And certainly not Rome yet. So the Persians reigned in what is today Palestine roughly from about 540 BC to about 330 BC. And so scholars look at this and say, well, you know, they see the Persian word for governor, just further confirmation of when Malachi wrote. Okay, what's the theme of this book? Theme of Malachi's book, pretty straightforward, pretty clear. The people had lost their fear of God. Some of us here this morning have lost our fear of God, or we've never had a fear of the Lord. Not a whining kind of cowering fear of God, but a healthy, reverent fear of the Lord. And these people had lost their fear of God. And specifically, they had become apathetic and disobedient, which led to two things. And you'll see these come up in the book. One, because they were no longer fearing God or obeying. And by the way, obedience is rooted in the fear of God. Fear of God is the soil of obedience. They, they weren't doing either. They weren't obeying God but because they lost the fear of God. And what the result was is God was no longer blessing their lives. The blessing, they were forfeiting the blessing of God on their lives. Some of us here this morning, because of our disobedience, we are forfeiting the blessing of God in our lives. And we, we, can, we, we can sense it, we know it, we can feel it, you can taste it and see it. And then secondly, they were inviting God's judgment, calling into question the longer the disobedience was going on, whether they were even legitimate believers or just spiritual counterfeits. And that also comes up in the book. Key verse of the book, chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes or my commands and have not kept them. Return to me. We see this plea over and over in the prophets, which again is a reminder of God's love because even all of his warnings are reminders that he loves his people. You don't warn people unless you love them and unless there's hope that they might turn around. So you see this plea constantly, return to me, and notice God's promise. What's he promise? I'll return to you. And that's still true here this morning. If you're in sin, if you're in disobedience, if you return to the Lord, his promise is he'll return to you. If you've never known the Lord before, the promise is if you repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will indwell you and be with you. Return to me, I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, we'll get to this. This is a sarcastic question. How shall, how shall we return? Background, very quickly, of Malachi. Malachi is writing about a thousand years after Abraham. So Abraham, all the way back in Genesis, has been about a thousand years. And the Israelites had the weight and advantage of history on their side. Why do I say that? Because they know from their record and their scriptures exactly what happens when they obey and when they disobey. It's no great mystery. <laughs> There's a long track record in their scriptures of what happens when the people obey or the people disobey. And they knew, the, they knew the consequences. And as we noted, they've been back for 100 years and they're once again back to their old ways of disobedience. It's amazing the ruts we fall into. We all have proclivities to certain sins. 
And even God's people can fall right back into very dark ruts. And they'd lost their fear of God. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 6, chapter 1. There's a number of indications they lost their fear of the Lord. This is deadly. Chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I am then a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Or look at verse 14, the last sentence. Chapter 1, verse 14, last sentence. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Or look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Here God takes aim at the clergy. We'll look at this in a minute. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, there's that theme again, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. The word curse is very strong in Malachi, just like the word blessing is very strong. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Or the, last, the next two verses. Behold, I will rebuke your offering and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you will be taken away with it. Why? Because they're not obeying. One more verse about their loss of fear of God. Chapter 3, verse 5. I'm just reading a few of them to give you the feel that this is not a one-off theme. This is a a steady theme through the book. Chapter 3, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and so do not, what? Fear me says the Lord of hosts. So this this comes up over and over and over again. Now here's what's ironic, both about my life, your life, and the life of these people. Here's what's ironic. Despite their disobedience, despite their spiritual apathy, despite their spiritual indifference, despite their just outright defiance of God and going back into their dark, sinful ruts and just staying there, nonetheless, the people were asking God, why aren't you blessing us anymore? I mean, the disconnect is galactic in their mind. And it's just a reminder how out of touch and how foolish we become when we are living in disobedience, even a true believer. Foolish to the point of blaming God for the consequences of our own sinful patterns and choices. I was working on this this week. Proverbs 19.3 came to mind. A man's own folly ruins his life, and yet his heart rages against the Lord. How true is that of us? We make foolish decisions. We make sinful decisions. We get our life into a mess. We feel miserable. We feel despair. We feel hopeless. And what do we do? We blame God. That's exactly what they were doing. They were doing it in his day. We do it today. Some of us here are doing it this morning. Because... God no longer is showing favor. He's removed his favor from their lives. The people in Malachi's day then concluded, well, then God didn't love them anymore. So they're sinning, disobeying. They're blaming God. And then they're accusing God of not loving them anymore. I mean, the whole thing becomes so twisted. But that's what sin does. And so one of Malachi's reasons for writing 
Young people, hear this. One of his reasons for writing is to remind people God does love them. To remind his people he does love them. But just because he loves them doesn't mean he won't discipline them. Just because he loves them doesn't mean they're not going to have pain in their life when they disobey. Very clear. Now, his book is structured. You need to know a little bit about the structure of the book. Okay. The book is structured around six disputes. You need to know that. Six times when God will declare and accuse the people of something, and then they will dispute it. The book is it's not structured like any of the other minor prophets in this sense. God accuses six different times. The people say, no, 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 no. And then they fire off a sarcastic question back to God, and then he will correct them. And the first of these disputes is in chapter 1, 1 to 5. Scholars have identified these six disputes. If you have a study Bible or something, it's very easy to see these six disputes laid out. The first one is chapter 1, 1 to 5. And the disputes, by the way, come with a whole series of questions. So in the four chapters of Malachi, you have eight sarcastic questions fired off at God. So you have six disputes, eight sarcastic questions fired off at God. And now you have the flavor and tone of the book. So the first dispute, and we're, we don't have time to look at all six, so I've chosen three. And we're going to look at the first one. And the first one here is that they're saying, well, he doesn't love us anymore. And so God answers in verses one to five, yes, I do, in fact. So let's see, this is the first dispute. I have loved you, says the Lord, verse two. But you say, here comes the first of the eight sarcastic questions. How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. If you know your Bible, if you know Romans, in chapter 9, Paul actually quotes that verse as he establishes the doctrine of predestination and election. And he quotes this verse reminding God chose Jacob over Esau in the womb before either one had done anything good or bad. His sovereign decree of election. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are all shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. It's amazing as we disobey God, he just comes against us and nothing goes right. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So the book opens with these words of affirmation that God does in fact love his people in spite of their disobedience, in spite of their callousness, in spite of their indifference, in spite of their apathy, in spite of their defiance, in spite of their blatant rebellion against him over and over. He's saying to them, I do love you, but that doesn't mean things aren't going to hurt just because I love you. Now that brings us now to the second part of the book, words of warning. Have words of affirmation. We just looked at that. God loves his people. Now, words of warning. This is the largest section of the book. It runs roughly from chapter 1, verse 6, roughly to chapter 4, verse 1. Why, why do I say roughly? Well, you got to remember, verses were not in the original Hebrew manuscripts. Verses were not added till the Middle Ages. And so, roughly, this section ends in about chapter, what we call chapter 4, verse 1. And this is where the other five disputes are. So the first dispute is in the opening five verses. Then the last five disputes are in this 
major section here. Now, we don't have time to look at all five of these last disputes. So I chose three of them. And this will give us a good flavor of the book. I chose dispute two, three, and five. And so we're going to dive into those. Each of the disputes has an accusation from God, has words of warning from God, has arguments back from the people. How often we argue with God when he says that's sin. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's. And then we wonder why his blessing is evaporated in our life. And this is a good challenge for all of us. So the second dispute, that's the first one we're going to look at. What's going on? Well, that's in, that's in starting in verse 6, chapter 1. And it goes through chapter 2, verse 9. This is the second dispute. Here's the accusation. At the core of every one of these disputes, first there's an accusation. So God, in this, in this second dispute, here's what he's accusing. He's going after the priest, the clergy in this one. And he's accusing them of being corrupt and misleading the people. And by the way, this is still a very real problem today. Many of you know that there are many good churches on the horizon and on the landscape. And surprises people. There are also bad churches around that have corrupt clergy and unsaved pastors. And it's very important you end up in a Bible teaching church that has spirit-led leaders and not in a corrupt church with corrupt leaders. I mean, that's critical. And the same thing was going on back then. And so God takes aim at the priests. For example, you see this one starting in verse 6 down through verse 8, chapter 1. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If I am then your father, where's my honor? If I am a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, priest. So he's talking to the priest. Says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So God answers by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, here comes another sarcastic question. I mean, the insaneness of how we do this with God. How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. The rebuke continues in full force. Chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. For the lips of a priest, this is God speaking, should guard knowledge. And the people should seek instruction from his mouth. He is is the messenger of the Lord. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Very strong language towards the priests who are misleading the people. And you see this throughout the scriptures. Who does God hold the most accountable? Teachers. The leaders. If you want to read one of the most blistering attacks from Jesus, it's in Matthew 23, when he was attacking the religious leaders for their corruption and for misleading his people. And God saves some of his, basically his strongest language of rebuke against corrupt leaders. You see this over and over. Back in 1966, at the World Congress on Evangelism in Berlin, world-famous evangelist Billy Graham As far as we know, Billy Graham preached to more people than any other human being in the history of the world. Billy Graham, speaking at this event that he helped organize, was speaking to 1,200 evangelists 
and itinerant preachers and missionaries from all over the world. And he chose as the title of his address at this World Congress on Evangelism, Stains on the Altar. That was the title of his sermon. And he took direct aim at the pastors, the clergy, the missionaries and evangelists at this conference and took direct aim at corruption and dishonesty and lack of integrity. And he said it will undermine their ministry. And if you know anything about Billy Graham, especially his preaching back in those days, he took no prisoners. He was absolutely clear in his declaration of what God had said. 300 years earlier than that, Richard Baxter, great Puritan theologian, one of his most famous books, The Reformed Pastor, the word reformed there means the renewed pastor, that was the title of the book. In his very first chapter in that book called The Oversight of Ourselves, he's writing to pastors, 1650s. He sounds just like Billy Graham. In that opening chapter, The Oversight of Ourselves, he offers these blunt words to pastors, quote, this is going to shock some of us here, but this is his quote. Quote, many a preacher is now in hell. God never saved anyone simply for being a preacher. Alas, it is a common danger and calamity of the church to have unsaved and inexperienced preachers and to have so many men become preachers before they are ever Christians. Close quote. If that surprises you, it's no different today. There are many pulpits filled with men who do not know God. And so, hence the importance of finding a church that does. So that's the second dispute. No holes barred, taking aim at the pastors. The third dispute we'll look at, that starts in verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, down through chapter 2, verse 16. What's the core of the third dispute? Remember, every dispute has an accusation. Well, here's the core of this accusation. That the people were divorcing their spouses and then just marrying women who worshipped another god and breaking their marriage vows. And God here in this section, probably one of the clearest sections in the Bible, taking direct aim at any of us when we break our marriage vows. And he's very clear, he takes marriage vows very seriously. So the core of the third dispute, God's accusation, the people were divorcing their spouses. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. That means married a woman who worships another deity. And God's rebuke is clear and to the point. He calls them to be faithful to their marriage covenant. He calls us to be faithful to our marriage covenant. Anytime I marry anybody and do a wedding, I'm very clear with the couple, especially in the final session or two before they have the actual ceremony, I was asking the same thing. Do you have any doubt that this is the right person and this is the right time? Because once you take sacred vows up front, they are not yours to break or you will invite God's judgment. Verses 14 to 16. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. They were breaking their vows. Though she is your companion and the wife by covenant... Did not he make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. 
For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Some translations condense this a bit and say what it means. God hates divorce, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in spirit and do not break faith or do not be faithless. As I point out each time, God does not say he hates the divorced. He hates divorce. He expects us to keep our word given when we stand before him and his people or we invite discipline or judgment on ourselves because of it. And then the fifth dispute, and that is in chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. This is the last one we'll look at. What's the core of the fifth dispute? What is the accusation in the fifth dispute? Well, it's this. God is accusing the people that they were robbing him. Verses 6 to 10, chapter 3. This is the accusation. Now, they're going to argue with him. They're going to dispute him. How often we foolishly argue with God, dispute what he has said clearly in the text, clearly to us in Scripture. It's amazing how often I'll argue with God, even though it's right there, and I know the consequences if I choose to sin, but in our insanity, we go ahead and do it, and then we expect something different to happen. (laughs) Chapter 3, verses 6 to 10, the accusation, the people were robbing God. For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore, O children of Israel, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes or my commands and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. There's that gracious, loving, merciful plea from God to return, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, and this is not a heartfelt question. This is an accusation. How shall we return? Will you rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Another one of these sarcastic questions. Answer in your tithes and offerings, your contributions. You are cursed. This is very strong language in the Hebrew. You're a curse with a curse. This isn't just a curse. (laughs) This is a curse curse. For you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. There may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I do not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Can you imagine that much blessing coming on your life, your family, your marriage, your home, that you don't even need any more blessing? You ever come to church and say, I, I, and someone says, how you doing? I've had so much blessing this week, I can't take anymore. I don't hear that very often. And I don't say it very often. But that's what the promise is here. Now, some of you are newer to the Bible. You're saying, what's what's this tithe? It's a Hebrew word. You can translate it tithe or tenth. It's the same thing. That's all it means. It's a tenth. So the Bible's command to God's people, if you know God, we're commanded to give at least a tithe of our income to him. That means to give a tenth of our income, give a tenth of something. In an agricultural setting, it was to give a tenth of their produce, but it was to bring a tenth. So Deuteronomy 14.22, back in the Torah, God says to Moses, be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produce every year. That's in an agricultural setting. In more of a modern urban setting or suburban setting, it's to bring a tenth of what we earn to the Lord. Now here's what a lot of people miss. They miss verse 6. This is rooted in a promise about God's faithfulness. That's what a lot of people miss here. Young people, don't miss this. 
Adults, don't miss this. This is rooted in theology. This isn't just a raw command, cough up the bucks. This is rooted in a promise from God. It's rooted in theology. What's the theology? Verse 6, I the Lord do not change. That's the whole first statement before he gets into the charge that they're robbing him. And so theologians call this the immutability of God, that he does not change. I, the Lord, do not change. Everything, ladies and gentlemen, young people, goes back to theology. Everything goes back to our view of who God is. If I am being stingy, if I am not tithing, you know what? It means I don't trust God anymore. And so I better manage my funds because if I give 10%, 15 20% to the Lord... I'm going to be in deep trouble. And what have I just said? I don't trust what God has said. I don't believe him. You're no different than, than these people. And so in other words, the issue of money and obedience comes down to this. How do you view God? How do I view God? Now, a couple questions because some of us are newer to this about tithing. I'm just going to address two. We'll move on and we'll close. Wasn't tithing just an Old Testament concept? You know, it was an Old Testament thing. It's in the Old Testament. And only for the Jews. And the short answer is no. The tithe first is mentioned in Genesis 14. Before there were any, before the Israelites had a law. Before there were any Israelites. Before Israel even existed as a nation. There already is the mention of the tithe. And the New Testament also mentions tithing. For example, Matthew 23. Jesus rebukes religious leaders and he rebukes them for tithing in the wrong way. He says in Matthew 23, you should do the former tithing while not neglecting the latter. What? Matters of justice and mercy. So they were tithing, but they weren't showing justice and mercy. And Jesus rebuked them and said, you should do the former and not neglect the latter. They were doing the tithing and neglecting the justice and mercy. So it's not just an Old Testament thing. It starts all the way back in Genesis and we, already, and we still see it. If anything, the New Testament actually is more radical than tithing. The New Testament teaches something called proportional giving, meaning our giving is to take pace, keep pace with our income. And tithing in the New Testament is viewed more as a floor than a ceiling. But here, here's the bottom line question. What do you want written over your house? Curse or blessing? I'm a simple guy, but that's simple. And I want blessing written over my house. Now, the concept of blessing, remember, is broad in the Bible. Malachi is not a prosperity preacher here. Okay? This is not Benny Hinn. This is not Kenny Copeland. This is not Creflo Dollar and some of these false prophets. This is a man saying, look it. If you want God to be faithful, he is faithful. But one way he can show it is by how you use your money. And it will invite so much blessing on you. If you're faithful, you'll say, I can't do anymore. Blessing like what? Well, the concept of blessing in the Bible is broad. It's blessing on our family, blessing on our marriage, blessing on our ministry, blessing on our finances, blessing on uh, our, our, our career, our ministries. It's, it's a broad concept. But again, what do you want written over your house? Curse or blessing? That's what it's saying here. And then where should our tithe go? The New Testament here is very clear, as it is here, actually. And, the, and it is this. Our tithe is to go to our place of primary spiritual care. That's very clear. Here it's the storehouse. In the New Testament, it's the local church. And what Malachi is doing here, and we've called this the tithing challenge. That's what it is. I've even preached a sermon of that title. He's saying, look it. And it's the only time God does this. Test me. Try this. 
We've had numerous people come up here and give testimony, give stories about how they actually were skeptical, they tried it, and then they watched God's blessing come on their life in some area of their life. And so I challenge you this morning, if you are not being obedient in the tithe, if you are not directing your tithe to your local church, if you're saying, I don't trust God in all this, I would say, give God a try. Do exactly what he says. You take several months and you try and see what he says. And I've never had anybody come up to me later and say, he didn't deliver. I have no sense of his increased blessing anywhere in my life. It's a powerful statement. Lastly, that brings us to the last section of Malachi, which are words of hope. We've seen words of affirmation and then words of warning in these other disputes. And then lastly, we come to the last few verses, verses two through verse six of chapter four. And we have words of hope. Malachi's book closes with words of hope for those who fear God. It's mentioned again. And we see the first glimmers of this back in chapter 3, verse 16. This is encouraging. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And what's the next phrase? The Lord paid attention. He paid attention to those who fear him and heard him. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and honored or esteemed or revered his name. Then further promise of God's triumph over evil, words of hope are given in the first three verses of chapter four. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming and it shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them either root nor branch. Well, that is pretty strong language. You say, what's hopeful about that? The wrath of God is part of the gospel of hope that God will step in eventually and judge evil. If there's no judgment, there's no wrath of God someday. If it's a level playing field in the afterlife, there's no hope in that. Then justice never prevails. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Notice the phrase in verse 2, son of righteousness. Some translations in English capitalize son in righteousness. Some do not. The problem is that Hebrew, this comes from Hebrew, written in Hebrew, doesn't have upper and lowercase letters. Greek does. New Testament, written in Greek, has upper and lowercase. Hebrew does not. Hebrew doesn't have upper or lowercase letters. It just has letters. And so it's, it is, as I check different scholars, I turn to one of my favorite, Walter Kaiser, great Hebrew scholar. And he, in fact, he has a fairly good sized book out on messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. And he says, there's no doubt that the title son of righteousness here is referring to Messiah because the phrase righteous one is often applied to Messiah. So the point is linking the Messiah with the healing power of light and righteousness as he brings salvation. And then finally, verses 5 and 6, there's a promise that before the final day of judgment, God will send another Elijah. Look at 5 and 6. Behold, 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah was, if they had a Mount Rushmore in ancient Israel, Elijah would have been one of the dudes on Mount Rushmore there. He was well known. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day comes. You say, well, did that happen? Well, turn to Luke chapter 1. Go over to the gospel of Luke chapter 1. 
verses 11 to 17, you will see that John the Baptist is identified as this coming archetype, prototype of Elijah. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Also no surprise, when Jesus took his guys on a short-term mission trip up to Caesarea Philippi, and he was asking the question, who do people say I am? What was one of the guesses? Elijah. He says in Matthew 16, they came to the district of Philippi, and he he said, "Who who, who are people saying I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah. Why would they pick Elijah? Because they'd read their Bible. They knew what it said in Malachi. And that is how the Old Testament closes in the English Bible with this tremendous promise that they'll know the new era has dawned when this new Elijah comes. And John the Baptist was that new Elijah. Starting in January, I'm going to be doing a year-long series in the book of John, Gospel of John. And it starts out with the longest section devoted to John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. And we will see this connection. All right, our summons as we close. Land this airplane. Summons. What's our summons today? Twofold. First, you can't get away from the summons right here in Malachi 4.1. And that is this. Friends, young people, kids, the prophets could not be clear there's a day of judgment coming. We don't like that. We shun against it. The day of the Lord, a day of judgment is coming. Malachi declares it, Amos declares it, Nahum declares it, Habakkuk declares it, Jesus declares it, said in the book of Revelation, it's over and over again. Are you ready to meet God? There's very strong language in verse 1 here. Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed unto mankind once to die and after this what? Judgment. Not reincarnation. Not soul sleep. Not annihilation. Not nothingness. Eternal Nothingness, judgment. And the looming question this morning over the human race and over you and I, have you been forgiven of your sin? Are you justified? You say, well, preacher, how do I become justified? How do I get saved? And it couldn't be any clearer than Romans 10, 9. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Couldn't be any clearer. Cry out to Jesus as Savior. That's the first summons. The second summons this morning. We're not only saved from something. Hell. Wrath. Christians are saved to something. And that's often forgotten. What do I mean? And this is a game changer. Understanding this. The Bible says that when a person, a sinner, a rebellious sinner like us, repents and believes the gospel, not only are we saved from judge and wrath, 
judgment and wrath, we're saved to something. Namely, to good works in Christ. Ephesians 2.11, I mean 2.10, puts it this way. Speaking of true believers, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for what? To do good works. Friends, that's the gospel. Saved by faith alone in Jesus in order to do good works and find lasting joy. Some of us here this morning are joy starved. In other words, the Bible teaches that good works are the result, not the cause of salvation. There's so much confusion on that. Good works are the result, not the cause of salvation. The power to obey Christ comes after salvation through the Holy Spirit, not before. When a sinner is saved, and they're saved by the grace of God through the work of Christ. That means the risen Christ then is alive in them. The power of the Holy Spirit is alive in them. And they can finally, joyfully obey the law of God. Hating what they used to love. And loving what they used to hate. Saved from wrath. Saved to good works. Alive in Christ. One with Christ. In union with Christ. And hear this promise. I close with this about the righteous. Psalm 84, 11, quote, no good thing, no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. You hungry for good things in your life? You hungry for so much blessing you can't take it anymore? Take God at his word and obey him and seek him with all your heart. Father, thank you for Malachi. Thank you for these 12 prophets. Father, we know it did not go easy for a number of them. And yet they were faithful. I want to pray for those here today as I close this series. Who aren't sure they're reconciled to you. Father, I know in front of me are people who don't know for sure. And I pray you would open their eyes and draw them. And today would be the day that they would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and settle the issue once and for all. And I want to pray for those who are walking in disobedience today. Father, you are inviting them to return to you. They know who they are and the invitation is there. And may there be a sweetness as they come back, repent and seek you. And I pray for those who are walking faithfully that you would bless them today. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the joy in our congregation. Thank you for your families you're bringing. Thank you for your blessing on our elders and our leaders in what you're doing here. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.